For nearly half a century, Richard Dickey Landry was at the center of the New York avant-garde. Born in Cecilia, Louisiana in 1938, he went to the city in his teens in search of the most cutting-edge gestures in jazz, finding a close-knit community of artists like Keith Sonier, Philip Glass, Robert Rauschenberg, Lord Sweener, and Robert Wilson. He also became one of the most important photographic documenters of the New York scene. Landry remains one of few artists of his generation who made waves with the numerous creative idioms. Trained from a young age on saxophone, he is a respected solo performer and also a long-standing member of Philip Glass's ensemble, playing on records like Music with Changing Parts, Music in Similar Motion, Music in Fifths, Music in Twelve Parts, North Star, and Einstein on the Beach. He's played with Talking Heads, Laurie Anderson, and jazz giants like Johnny Hammond, Gene Ammons, and Les McCann. Dickie Landry, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you, Mia. Looking at the variety of your work, your solo career, your paintings, your photography, and not to mention all the artists that you've collaborated with. We saw yesterday, of course, the performance, yeah. Gloria, mm -hmm. with Robert Wilson and Rushenberg or Laurie Anderson. And I mean, you've kind of been spinning your wheels all these years. <laughs> <laughs> it could go on. The performance of Gloria was so beautiful on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the Festival oh. How did that come together? I just finished a tour with Bob Wilson, Oedipus Rex, and Gloria that you heard yesterday. He used the song part of the performance in Oedipus. He contacted me a year ago about the chapelle, and he wanted to use the Gloria, but he wanted 24 minutes. The glory that we use in edifice is only 9 minutes and 20 seconds long. And there was some money involved, but then I get another note that there's no money to extend the piece or a new piece. So we had to use the original in 9 minutes and 20 seconds. His engineer tried to cut it up and extend it to make it 20 minutes long, and I didn't approve of that at all. It cut the music too much, and. Some of it was played backwards, etc. So basically that's how it came together. I did a concert at the Festival of many, many, many years ago. And also with Wilson. I would like to go more into how that's possible to extend that. I know that in your solo career, you've also multiplied your own. You've become a quintet as a solo performer. So how did that work in terms of extending? I disapproved of the extension of the uh, piece yeah. because the music was playing backwards and, you know, it was all out of order. It wasn't card-wise. It wasn't following the card progressions. And there was always the idea of using voices from the very beginning because he had speakers on there of like 2017 stained glass windows and he had speakers up and down so he was gonna create a voice on the right hand side in the front and then another voice on the left hand side the opposite way so that they crisscrossed each other but in such a space like that with the echo and everything you could get a dry sound in other words there would be always this overhanging reverb in the space there were citations from Lucretius in the piece, but it also sounded very contemporary. I didn't realize it. I thought there was a melange of contemporary writing. I actually just heard the words for the first rehearsal. And because I have only one good ear, I really didn't understand anything that people yeah. were talking about. Yeah. I didn't understand 
the words at all. So I'm looking forward. I just wrote to Bob and said, I'd like to read the speeches. Laurie, it moved me profoundly. You're talking about the voices. We have three generations. We have the symbolism of this beautiful Saint-Chapelle. And it just reminded me, it may be even a metaphor of your own career, of all these collaborations. And always it's bending towards the light. There was this great positive momentum. And I'm wondering, as you were creating this piece, I know you said that you aren't presently religious, but I wonder if you were also brought back to your youth and singing Gregorian chants. I just felt it was a piece that spoke to anyone, whether they're religious or non-religious. It was like the glory of creation, whether that's in the arts or whatever one's personal beliefs right, are. Yeah. The original Gloria is from the Mass. The Mass I created for Dominique de Menil for the opening of our museum, the Menil Collection in Houston, Texas. It's the Gloria, and there's a chord structure to it. So when I got a friend of mine, keyboard player, Larry Seabeth, come in and interpret the piece. And with my recommendations and things and what not to do and what to do, that's how the piece came about. And in my own work, I use delay to form a, a quartet. And I call it a quadraphonic delay. In other words, I take my original, original sound and delayed 400 milliseconds to the first speaker, then 800 milliseconds to the second speaker, and then 1200 milliseconds to the third speaker, and 1600 to the fourth speaker. So you end up with a quartet, actually a quintet. So if I decide to use the original sound in all speakers at once, it could be five saxophones instead of four. No one had done that before. That was a complete innovation. That, yeah, what, 1972. I had a good friend of mine who was performing with the Phil Glass Ensemble, Robert Prado, went back to Louisiana to take care of his wife and got a job and he was in an oil field accident and died. So I came back to New York and decided to do a, a memorial service for him. At the time, I had just finished a record with Lawrence Wiener where I used stereo delay. So I asked my engineer, can we have more than one delay? He said, well, can, in those days, you, you had to use tape recorders to make the delays. There was no electronic machinery to do that. So he said, well, we can have as many delays as we can come. So I said, well, can, you, can we get four? Yeah. So we got, and I had about 10 minutes to try it out before the concert, and I liked it, and I said, okay. So when I finished doing my first concert with the quadraphonic delay idea, I told myself I will never have a group. <laughs> the group will be me and the four speakers. It solves the problem of having them to get on the same page. Yeah, having a band is like having five wives or six wives. It all depends how many musicians are in the band. Yeah. Every day somebody has a problem. You know, right. I need money or my, my baby is sick. So there's always a problem with musicians. With speakers, you pack them up and bring them with you. <laughs> and you have a strong work ethic, so you don't have that problem with yourself. Yes, you yes, know you're going to be yes. on time. So you mentioned your collaborations with Philip Glass and coming to New York. Just take us back a little bit further. You grew up on a farm? I grew up in Cecilia, Louisiana, born on November 16, 1938. Very poor family. No electricity, no running water, heat by wood. My mother was a teacher, first grade and second grade. She taught for 40 years died at 102 and a half, totally mentally together. My father was a foreman on jobs in Central and South America building sugarcane refineries. At the age of 13, my father came back and opened a dairy. But in the meantime, growing up, there was not much to do except to go to church. 
there was no movies or television or anything else. We didn't have a radio. So my mother brought me to the church, St. Joseph's Church in Cecilia, to become an altar boy, to serve the priest for the mass and stuff. I had three girl cousins who would come for a month every summer, and we had a great time together. In those days, those were my close friends, my cousins. So I realized that I like girls. So as we were talking to the priests, the choir started singing in the back of the church, up in the loft. And I turned around, it was all girls, who go like, Mama, I want to sing. <laughs> so thanks to the women, this is how I began my musical career. My brother is a saxophone player also. He's eight years older than I am. And when the Korean War broke out, he joined the Air Force and was stationed in Waco, Texas, where Bob Wilson is from and would send me records and jazz records and stuff. When he came out of the service, he was playing in a society band, dances and weddings. And when I was 13 years old, he invited me to come to the club. And I had to go through the back door because I was underage. And that was my first professional job. I made $10 for four hours, and that was a lot of money in those days. <laughs> Compared to what you get yes. milking cows or anything. Yeah, and then I played another band. That band was called the Harry Gregg Orchestra. And then when I went to university, I joined a big band with five saxophones, two trumpets, trombone, guitar, female pianist, just a female singer. At that time, oil was being really discovered in Louisiana, so that was a lot of money going around. So I'd play with this band maybe two, three nights a week and made almost as much money as I was making in the 70s and 80s playing rock and roll. That's my beginning of my musical career, the church and then society bands and big bands. It also occurs to me that growing up on a farm, it's not all silence. I don't know how that goes into your personal sound. It's really hard to know how that kind of atmosphere is imprinted on you when you're young. I'm just thinking about all the animals or the birds and those kind of things. And as you said, the, the freedom or the empty spaces to make your own stories or make your own entertainment, it seems like a kind of blessing or an experience at least that many young it people... It was truly a blessing. When Christmas came around, I would get one toy. Unlike today where you get massive amounts of toys and kids now just go through them like, you know, open one present, ten presents. Anyway, like I said, we had no electricity, running water. I remember when I was six or seven years old, we got electricity and I remember turning the light off and on, off and on, off and on, and flushing the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> this is Christmas. <laughs> yeah. And uh, one quick little funny story. My mother asked me what I wanted for Christmas. I wanted a little rocker, rocking chair. So Christmas morning, I go to the, what we called a tree at that time, it was, and that was Unseeno Rocker. And I started crying, looking out the window, crying. And my mother said, what are you crying about? And I had my foot on something. I was leaning on my knee and... I was crying, and she said, what's you crying? I said, well, I didn't get in my rocker. And she said, what is your foot on? I had my foot on the rocker. <laughs> and one time it snowed for Christmas, which is very rare in Louisiana. But I had, I had a cold, and she wouldn't let me go and play in the snow. I was really hurt. But anyway, that's little stories. That's beautiful, <clears throat> because I think that these things echo out through, I imagine, through your life. I mean, you did leave Louisiana. You mentioned going to New York and, of course, traveled around the world mm-hmm. for your music and as a company to visual art. But it stays with you, I imagine. If you don't have the toys, you have to make your own toys. You have to right. make your own music. Right. And so the, you were drawn to the saxophone, but it was handed down to you by your brother. You also played flute. I think you played clarinet. But why those particular instruments spoke um, to you? I- I have no idea. I, I really liked the flute and 
remember the year I was graduating, I bought a flute for $25. It was, you know, it wasn't a very good flute, and I once sat on it, and I bent it, and I bent it back, and it worked. There's a photograph of me playing with the Cecilia High School band, practicing for my graduation. To go to the university in Lafayette, there was no flute, flute teacher or saxophone teacher, so I had to learn how to play the clarinet. When I was a junior in high school, my brother took me to a music summer camp at Lafayette High School, and the director of the summer camp was Mr. John Guilford. Mr. Guilford was the son of a circus musician, and he knew how to play every instrument in the band, and also all the trick fingerings, and he knew everything about every instrument. So I did the first summer, junior, and then second summer, senior high school, and at some point when the session was ending, Mr. Gilbert came and he says, I'm going to be the band director of the university next year, and you're going to be my first chair clarinet player. In hindsight, I must have been good <laughs> for a person like that, too. And in fact, when I got to the university, I could actually play better than my clarinet teacher. I want to get into your own personal sound, too, because I know that you love free improvisation. I know it's not just jazz, it's this melange. And personally, what I appreciate is this versatility. And while it seems like it's always cool, it's not pegged, for me anyway, to a particular time period. You know, you hear somebody's music, it's like 10 years ago, and it's, oh, that sounds so much like that time. Your own personal sound, it's not dated. It just seems cool, but like of every time. Well, most people think I'm a jazz musician. You refer to me as a jazz musician. I tried to play jazz, constructed jazz, and I felt confined by the constructed stuff. So when I started playing, interpreting jazz songs, I was having a lot of problems keeping that structure in my mind. So all of a sudden I heard other people playing free jazz, and I gravitated to that. And today, most of my solo concerts are free improvisation. And a lot of people, to get to that sense of, it's free, but also it's, I mean, you can describe it to me, that level of concentration, which is at the same time loose and open and listening. How did you arrive at that? That took a little time to organize in my head. I still have problems today. Some people call it stage fright. I don't know what it is, but I'm always right before a concert thinking, why am I doing this? I'm not, I should be doing this. I should be doing that. Why am I here? What am I going to do? And I walk up to the microphone. I'm still thinking this and I start playing and I'm still thinking like, what am I doing here? Why, why, why? All the questions of how I'm going to sustain playing for 45 minutes or an hour and I'm still playing and playing, and then all of a sudden I go, well, Mr. Landry, you got people sitting in the audience, you're getting paid for this, so enjoy yourself. So the next thing I know, the concert is over, and I don't know where I've been. It's losing <laughs> oh, time. Oh, yeah, yeah, in time, I don't know where. <laughs> Some people might call that nirvana, I'm not sure. It's very interesting, and their artist, Julia Montero, she does a different kind of thing, and the people call out from the audience something, and she has to improvise on that. Someone who wrote a book on this has described it to me, that they've done brain scans of the mind under improvisation mm-hmm. and the creative work is happening in another part of the mind it's the losing the sense right, of self right, right that we're right. talking about and i find it so beautiful because it's full of wonder it's like an acceptance of something coming into you and sometimes people the other side of it think oh it's kind of automatic i just think it's supremely effortful nothing is automatic i guess it's muscle memory mm-hmm. i just saw a concert about tony bennett with oh. lady gaga he has total dementia and everything else. Can't remember people's names. Can't remember that from hour to hour. But he got up and sang at one and a half hour. 
concert without making a mistake. Yeah. That's, that's what you call muscle memory. You can look at a football player who will throw a football 40 yards right on target. That's muscle memory. He's done it so many times. Your brain adapts to that process. Yeah. Same thing in music. Yeah, but this is also very creative too. It's like, is you're not a robot, you're an artist. Yes, yes, it's of magic. course. Throwing the football, he improvises a lot. Yeah, a, a quarterback. Yeah, I can't imagine. <laughs> I don't know that particular skill, but yeah, like you're reading the wind, you're reading the, all these things. Well, look at a tennis Music. player. Look at tennis yeah. players where they have hit the ball in one side of the court, and next thing you know, it's on the other side of the court above. It's all practice, practice, practice. That's when I tell people, well, I want to learn how to play the saxophone or play the flute or clarinet or any instrument. I said, start practicing. And it's really the power of the collective, too, because I, I imagine that when you can rely on this unconscious mind that has been built up through the rehearsals right. and the, all that, and you get to that level of that deep skill, it becomes more powerful because then it's like that collaborative, you're stronger right. with the group. Can you describe the kind of improvisations or collaborations you had talked about, Philip Glass, or how you tune into these other artists and you can pick up each other's notes or you can pick up each other's creative okay. process? Yeah, with Philip Glass, there's no improvisation whatsoever, except for the first record he put out, Music in Changing Parts, where he's playing the keyboard and other musicians are playing long tones at their will. But the other music of Philip Glass is totally written out. There is no improvisation whatsoever. I don't think Philip could improvise his way out of a paper bag, much less. <laughs> He's a composer. It's a different thing. Yeah. And you play what he writes. Yeah. That'll answer that question about Philip. Anyway. The collaborative process. Still, there's a sense. Philip came out with this new music. Philip started with Robert Shankar as a drummer. And if you notice, if you know any music, the basic pattern is one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, four. In the many processes of those numbers, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, three, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three. So when Philip, the first rehearsal, Philip came with a piece of paper with those numbers on it. And I said, Philip, what notes do you want me to start on? And what notes do I go to in the one, two, in one, two, three, one, two, three, four? And he looks at me, he says, you mean I have to write this out? I said, yeah, because I'm in the key of B-flat, you're in the key of C, we're note apart. <laughs> so he said, I mean, I have to write all that music out? Yes. So anyway, the ensemble, we had to learn how to play Philip's music and give him advice of rhythm and, and fast or slow. The first ensemble was basically built around other composers, some on keyboard players, some not. And I remember going to the first rehearsals and one, da dee do dee da dee do dee Mistake, da, da, de, da, de, mistake, mistake. Well, my God, this is, this is torture. So as my friends came up from Louisiana, jazz musicians, I'd have Philip audition them. And finally we got out of six musicians, four from Louisiana, and eventually seven musicians from Louisiana went through the ensemble. So at some point I told Philip, we've got to make the music faster, just faster, to the point where it went above fast and then we settled at a normal tempo. That's the story of that Philip Glass Ensemble. It's amazing because it seems like a perfect thing in your head, but then when you hear it, the impossibilities, yeah, yeah. just the actual thing, and then you have to yeah. make those tweaks. I think that most people would know Einstein on the Beach. That, That's a masterpiece. Uh, 
1976 was to be celebrating its 200th year of existence. And Michel Guy, the uh, Minister of Culture, came to New York to offer a commission to Philip Glass and Wilson to write an opera. This was the gift that France would do for America's 200th year anniversary. Yeah, like this gift, yeah. yes. Actually, that was the first time I met Wilson at the meeting, Michel Guy. And Michel Gibb found out I was an artist, and he came to my studio and bought four drawings. So we went to Avignon. And I don't know if you've seen the photograph or the poster, the two girls floating in the air. The day before, I was in the office with Bob, and I said, do you have a photograph of the poster? He said, no, not yet. So I said, I'll work on it, but I need it by 10 o'clock in the morning. I said, okay. So in one of the knee plays, the knee play is the section between in the opera, like a break before a big scene. And it was Cheryl Sutton and Lucinda Child. Well, in one of the knee plays, they're sitting in chairs like this with their hands up and developed the film, developed the print, no Photoshop in those days. And I wanted to cut everything out around them, including the chairs and anything that, nothing was working. So everything I tried was you know, using scissors, knives, dodging in with my with the lights with the enlarger eight o'clock in the morning a friend of mine the unemployment office was across the street from where i lived downtown manhattan and a young man friend hollers up dickie so let him in and he said what what are you working on so i'm working, i'm trying to do this and he said oh the photos are all over there so it worked it took me maybe five minutes to get everything out of in about an hour go and buy a little bottle of photo bleach and with a cotton swab, go around the edges, the print. Walk into the office and show the thing to Bob. He looks at it, puts it in an envelope and sends it to Europe, and that's how it became the poster image. Well, simplicity we know is hard, but there's a beautiful simplicity and also a metaphor for the whole... Yeah, you know, Einstein floating, yeah, you know, yeah. the idea. I my idea from the beginning. And that, of course, is a huge masterpiece, is really the word, yes. and traveled all over the world. You traveled with that. And along the way, I think that you've always scheduled as well when you're traveling solo performances alongside what you were doing in ensembles. Of course. Tell us about that whole gypsy life. In the early 70s, European museums started discovering art after abstract impressionism. So you had people like Rosenberg, Jasper Johns coming out, and the museum directors, the collectors, art galleries started coming to New York and looking into who are these people, who are the new artists, who are the new composers, and we were in the right place at the right time. I was working for Keith Sonier, a friend of mine from Louisiana, and through him I met Philip Glass, and through Philip Glass, I met Richie Serra, 
and uh, worked with Richard. This is how I became a photographer. I would also like to know how the music was in conversation with those two different artists as well. Yeah. Well, the thing about Philip, this is a story how I film less. So my friend Keith Sonier told me, this is December 1968, I had driven to New York to see if I could handle New York, because I'd been there several times before. So uh, he said I saw an interesting concert by this composer Philip Glass last week. It was not only orally interesting, but also visually interesting. And I said, what did Philip do? He said he built a square, wooden square, and put one continuous sheet of music around the square and had a violinist go around performing it. Okay, that's interesting. So I called Philip, I went, living on 23rd and 8th Avenue, and three-story, he had three, three floors in this building, wife, two kids. So I met him, and he had just finished coming back, studying with Nadia Albrecht, the famous French woman, French composer, classical composer teacher. And I know what scores look like, and he was like thumbing through scores and not showing me anything. And in hindsight, he didn't want to show me that, because he was thinking about his new music. That was Our Year's What by Philip Glass, composed for Dickie Landry, playing three soprano saxophones on his LP, North Star, 1977. So at some point he says, I have to make tea for a blind friend of mine. And he said, you might know who that is. I said, well, who? He said, Moondog. And when Philip said he had Moondog living with him, I thought to myself, if this man, Philip Glass, has Moondog living with him, I have to pay attention to who this man is. When I was six years old, we got electricity on the farm. My father was partially deaf. He got a radio, and we you know volume was always up. I was in the bedroom, in the next room, and he would tune into the heavyweight fights at live from Madison Square Garden every Saturday night. And after the fights, a gravelly voice would come on live from the streets of New York, jazz with Moondog. So Moondog was my first underground hero. I mean, imprinted in my head. Listening to that's how I became interested in jazz by listening to Moondog. As I was leaving, Phil said, how long are you in town? I said, a couple of weeks. He said, well, I'm having a dinner with other composers next week. Come, Steve Reich, David Behrman, Frederick Jeffsky, and a couple others. Bring your saxophone. And so I went to dinner. I played. The composers played. Steve Reich, you know, it's okay. Then Philip said he was going to play a short piece, but he played for half an hour. And at the time, I was very interested in the avant-garde of Europe. Stockhaus, Boulez, Luigi Nono, on and on. Very complicated, atonal music. So when Philip finished playing, I almost ran up to him, but I didn't run. I rushed to him. I said, Philip, this is the best new music I've heard in a long time. He said, oh, if you like my music, I'm starting an ensemble. In January, you want to join? And I'm thinking to myself, yes. So I go back to Louisiana, pack up on myself, come back to New York. And I realized he only had one concert in 1969. Yeah, so no means, safety net. Yeah, no, I have no work. So he mentions that, you, have, you need work? I said, yes. He said, well, I have a moving company with a cousin of mine. And we're doing something tomorrow morning. Come and see. So I went to the East Village, walked up a five-flight tenement house building, and Philip put a refrigerator on his back and walked it down the stairs. When we got down the stairs, I said, Philip, 
I'm not moving anybody's freaking furniture. Well, what can you do? I said, I can plumb. I don't know plumbing. Oh, you knew in town, you, you won't be able to get the license. I'll get the license and you teach me how to plumb. So we plumbed for two years. Good honest labor, <clears throat> like what you do on the farm. And then we did it for two years. Our last plumbing job was with for Christo, the artist Christo, his wife, Claude. She wanted a bidet in her bathroom. She's oh. very French. <laughs> so, okay, but I do not want a mess. Okay, Philip explained, we have to cut the floor open. There's no water, no toilet water. It's just dirt and cutting pipes and stuff. I'm going shopping, no mess. So we cut the floor open and there's a mess, big mess. And she walks in and really starts cussing us out in heavy French. I can look at Philip, he's like turning blue, not red. And says, I'm his assistant. I'm looking the other way like, you know, like, okay. Says, I'm going shopping again. I do not want a mess when I return. So the minute the door closed, Phil said, pack up. I said, we're not done. We're done. We left the mess. He went to drive taxi cabs, and I started shooting photographs. That's a great story. I don't know if they were already covering things. <laughs> I thought there might be some origin story, like you left it with a towel, and they started covering things up with the... Uh, I don't know when yeah. it began, all the, the veiling. You have a real talent for that, tuning in or being able to be very honest with people to get to the core of who they are when others aren't around. And I don't know how you learned that or how you sought out people that could give you that. Oh, I, I never thought of it that way. Mm. I always judge people by my first personal contact with them. You get a vibe, it's good or it's bad. Yeah. And that's how I get through life. You accept people and some people you just, you have to brush them aside, otherwise they'll eat you up. That's interesting about the first impressions, because how things have changed over the years, that's sometimes hard to get now. I mean, because you're curated through a digital interface, you know, mm-hmm. to get the first impression may come so much later. Do you find that hard, that kind of distancing? I mean, for someone who might have had that more immediate contact mm-hmm. as an artist, mm-hmm. you know, the, the business, the various art forms that you've been involved in have really changed, whether it's music industry, art. Well, of course. Thank God it changes. Mm-hmm. It'd be awful if everything just remained the same, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And the way I became interested in art and was in high school. I was graduating in 1956. I remember going to the library and looking at Time magazine, Life magazine, etc. And abstract expressionism was coming out. Jackson Pollock on the cover, de Kooning and others. And I'm going like, well, this is interesting. You know, after looking at classical art for all these years. Because I was having this battle in in my head. Do I want to be a jazz musician, classical musician, or classical artist? What am I going to do when I'm out of school? The people are like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with your life? So one day I went to the library and was thumbing through Time magazine and turned the page and there's a work of art by Robert Rauschenberg. And when I saw what he had done and was getting international attention for this, this piece is hanging in a museum somewhere in the world. The light bulb went off in my head. I can be whatever I want. I don't have to be categorized. I'm free, free. He painted his bed and put it on the wall. A very famous mm. piece. Little did I know I'd ever get to meet him. So in 1969, I'm new in New York, and my wife at the time, Tina Gerard, was working for a dancer, Deborah Hay. And Deborah wanted to look at a 16 millimeter film. I had the 16 millimeter projector. And Deborah said, do you mind if I invite friends? I said, invite whoever you want. Well, the first person at the door was Robert Rauschenberg with a famous dealer from Switzerland. And I said, Bob, Mr. Rauschenberg, before you come in, I want to tell you how I know about you. And after I finished, he said, oh, that's okay. What do you have to drink? 
Jack Daniels says, my favorite drink. Anyway, walks in. He leaves at 5 o'clock in the morning completely south, drunk, and not to give the taxi cab the number for him to get home. So two weeks later, my friend Keith Sonier wanted to make a 16-millimeter film. I said, well, I met Rosenberg two weeks ago, and he has a camera. Six, I said, why don't you call him? Oh, I can't. I, well, you know each other. You're all in the gallery. He said, I met him a couple of times, but I don't feel comfortable calling him. And I'm thinking, I'm a social butterfly. I met him. I can, hey, Bob, I called him. And he says, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm talking to you right now. He said, no, no, I'm having a party. Come over. So I go at 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock in the afternoon. The party's on. I leave at 6 o'clock the next morning completely drunk. And I'm walking out with his camera. <laughs> and all of a sudden, she shouts out, hey, wait a minute. I really don't know who you are. Oh, but you're from Lafayette. You're okay. Because he had moved, he and his family had moved to Lafayette, Louisiana in 1948. And his mother was living there. And his sister is, is still alive. She's 85, living in Lafayette. So that's how we became friends. And through the parties and stuff, started traveling the world with him. Opening up for galleries and his exhibitions. Do you know about his Rocky tour? I'm curious about how that music might have changed as it traveled, because you were saying sometimes that music, is that also a response to the art, but also what you're feeling there? You have a vibe in a country. I am who I am wherever I go. Right. They have to tune into you. <laughs> exactly. I do what I do, and it's, mess- it's, how can I phrase this? It's, I don't judge a country, I don't judge the people. I go there offering what I do, and that doesn't change. What I do doesn't change to fit the country or the people. Oh yeah, I wouldn't yeah, expect yeah. anything else from you. But some countries have sound, I mean you find maybe a sonic difference, of course in Lafayette or your pecan farm or when you were living in New York City. There's all this, like it could be a cacophony or... You've been blending your different creative works, whether it's the photography we're getting into, the painting, the music, and I don't know how you decide or it's just whatever's appropriate. I love your paintings. I think that there's a power. I've always liked that the Saul Bass posters. There's this element for me, it, it kind of explains a sense of the music and this jazz element, what I liked about the Saul Bass, but yours, the figure absent from it so we can make up our own story it has that clarity oh, okay. it's a good uh, analogy of what i do i like that one i have to use that one <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's beautiful there's all these images of to me it's roads it could be musical notes it could be the yeah, uh, yeah, I got lines you. I got of you. the sheet music yeah, yeah. and then we project ourselves in it and so our imagination is working this is swing kings which you performed with from 1964 to 1968 opening for the likes of otis redding sam and dave wilson pickett Something's wrong with my baby Something is wrong with me And if I know she's worried Some people ask me sometimes, when you're painting, do you think about music or when you playing do you think about painting or do you photograph it's totally separate when i'm playing music i'm playing music when i'm painting i'm painting i'm not thinking about music in fact i don't listen to music when i'm painting photography is a whole technique and you have to pay attention to what you're doing instead of thinking about something else you got to focus on the process at the moment not dream of oh i'm listening to a symphony 
In film, of course, they come together, or sometimes those performance pieces that we experienced yesterday with Gloria, there's a mingling, but you're focused on your, your section. Of course. Yeah. The uh, photography, an uncle of mine, my brother's brother, had cameras and always would kind of not take them apart, but look how things work with the shutter, just letting it like, you know, I always wanted, what was the reason for this shutter going open, big, and small? And it didn't dawn on me when I was looking at it, that's how you let in more light or control the lighting going onto the film. The way I started taking photographs, I was walking on the street at the time I was working, Philip and I were working for Richard Serra, and met this young woman, Joan Jonas, on the street. I got introduced, and she invited us to her first performance. So I decided, I don't know why, to borrow my friend's camera. He put the film in, set the speed, the ASA, and all that stuff. I went and took the pictures. A day later, or two days later, Joan called me and says, I saw you there with a camera. Do you want to sell your photographs? And I'm thinking, plumbing, photography, duh. So that's how I started taking photographs. And I didn't know how to print. So this friend of mine who was living with us, Mike Kern, from a little town near Cecilia, and he bought the enlarger, he got the chemicals, well, the first print, we printed, everything came out. You could see the photographs, and we, and we put them in blotters like we were told, like to dry them out. The next morning, we opened the blotter, and all the photographs turned black. <laughs> mm. We didn't know a thing about fixers and stop baths and the whole process. of. So I learned by mistakes, and I eventually became a very decent printer. And that's how I, And then I started meeting through Philip, through Keith, through Richard, I started meeting all these other artists that were brand new in New York, all struggling to make a living, and they wanted photographs of their work. So that's how I started taking photographs. Yeah. And at the same time, you mentioned Richard Serra, and you were helping realize these yes. sculptures. Yeah, Yeah, we did. Uh, Philip and I and Chuck Close, Spalding Gray, right, uh, an actor, and uh, Bob Fiore, a camera person. We helped build Richard's first major show, at the Leo Castelli warehouse uptown where we were, Philip and I and Richard was melting lead, molten lead and splashing it against the wall. And then we were, all of these five people worked on building these incredible steel lead pieces. The lead plates were four feet square, half inch thick. Each plate weighed 400 pounds. And the idea was that they had to be self-standing. Very dangerous work, but we did it. And the way I got into painting, I always wanted to kind of dab. I used to draw in, in right out of, I had just gotten married and I was, all my drawings looked like Paul Clay or some of the French Impressionists. So uh, one day I was working, editing videotapes at the Leo Gaselli Gallery and the Jasper Johns show had closed that day. Gallery was closed and Leo Gaselli was walking around, sitting on the floor, standing in the corner, looking at the paintings I'm going, and the, I got very curious. I said, Leo, what are you doing? He said, I put this show together. These paintings will never be in the same room again in the rest of art history. And we kept talking about art. And he looked at me and he says, you really like art? I said, yeah. He said, well, I'm going to turn you into a painter. I kind of said, Leo, I said, I'd love to paint, but all the touring I'm doing with Philip and all my concerts, I don't have time to paint. He said, well, you think about it. So I think in 90, 1990, I moved to Florida. I fell in love with a woman, moved to Florida. And I met this man, an artist, and I was drawing on brown paper bags. <laughs> he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm drawing. He said, no, here's, here's some good cotton. Draw on that. So I did some drawings. And I looked at him. I said, do you, how do you think these drawings would translate to paintings? 
There's the canvas, there's the gesso, there's the paints. I don't know if you remember the old television sets, the, the video tubes were round at the top, yeah. round at the bottom. I just squared them off. The first painting I saw of what I had done, the finished painting, was a real turn-on. I mean, really heavy, like that painting was coming from my brain. It wasn't a photograph. It wasn't an image of something. It was coming from me, from this. That really, I mean, excited me more than when I first heard John, John Coltrane or Arnett call me. It was like, Paul, like this is, this is what painting is about. It's about individual piece of work. It's not mm -hmm. a photograph. It's not a... It never existed yeah. before. So at some point I went back to New York and I went to the gallery and Leo was in very ill health at the time. And I remember he got up to greet me and he fell over. I had to hold him up. I said, Leo, I'm painting. He said, do not show them to anyone else. I want to see them first. Unfortunately, in those days, there was no internet. He never got to see my paintings. And like Marlon Brando said in his movie, On the Waterfront, I could have been a contender. <laughs> <laughs> I could have been somebody. Anyway, well, that's the history of my paintings and how I got into photography. Well, you, we know you're a contender and, and the freedom uh, of your going uh, through the... Anyway, I didn't know what I had constructed this just squaring off of the the round tv tube there's a word for it in fact my first exhibit in louisiana my first major paintings and this young woman wrote an article about what my paintings were and i'm trying to think of the word now it was exo yeah yeah it's metric <laughs> where it turns the yes. thing into a cube and you say oh it's a six-sided thing i said mm -hmm. no six sides yeah if you look at it, there are six sides mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> So that's how my paintings came about. And this is always a question that's also leveled at musicians defining your paintings in a kind of mathematical or analytical way. But do you interpret music or paintings through a mathematical lens? To this day, I still have to go like eight and four is, uh, what eight and four is, uh, okay, eight and four, eight and three is 11, so eight and four is 12. Mathematics, it took me four years to get out of algebra one in yeah. the university. I have no concept of math whatsoever. But you know living math through art, through yeah, music. Yeah, I know, through, but yes. yeah, yeah. <laughs> And you don't maybe know how to build the camera, but you just know how to work. <laughs> yes. No, mathematics, no, no way. I have to go eight, you know, with my fingers. It's deep with you in, in, in a physical level, and so that's all that really matters. Four minutes are for other people. I like it's to weave stuff. We're, yeah. we're weaving a mat right now. Exactly. <laughs> also, we don't think of our lives chronologically. We're often living in right. the past or in the future, or like the way everything is now. So you're painting, you're doing these things simultaneously, and you're continuing all throughout this time to, without your solo career, but also collaborate with some pretty amazing people. Mm. I'm just looking at yesterday performances with Laurie Anderson or Paul. Simon, Bob Dylan, David Byrne, Talking Heads, and many, many, many mm. others. Tell me what you appreciated about those experiences and what maybe you only appreciate about it now, looking back. Well, we'll start, we'll start with Laurie Anderson. This is you playing Home of the Brave with Laurie Anderson on The Late Show. Listen, 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 listen,
Um, my son had died, and I'd taken took two years to recover. So I went to New York, I had dinner with Laurie, and as I was getting up to leave, she said, what are you doing in New York? I said, I'm looking for work. She said, what are you doing next week? I said, well, I'm supposed to be in Atlanta, Georgia, doing a music film with David Byrne and Talking Head. She said, well, I said, what do you have? She said, I'm doing a piece next week at Brooklyn Academy of Music with Trisha Brown and Robert Rosenberg, set, reset. Why don't you come? Bring your sax. So why don't she just bring your sax when we work it out then? So in the meantime, I called David. I said, look, David, I've been offered this thing with Laurie. And his immediate words, David, nobody knows you in Atlanta. Everybody will know who you are at Brooklyn Academy. All your friends are there. So I do do with Laurie. Two weeks after that concert, Laurie's manager called and said, do you want to go on a 20th City Tour of America with Laurie, Home of the Brave? Of course, we did that. That was the beginning of my reconstruction of my career in New York through Laurie Anderson. Then at the same time, I'm at a Cajun music concert at Carnegie Recital Hall of this Cajun group, Michael Ducey, and this black man, Canary Fontenot. A lot of people from Louisiana there, and they all say, oh, Paul Simon's in the audience, you should meet him. And I don't like to, I'm not a star guy. I don't go out, I don't rush to people to get that photo. So I'm walking up the stairs, going to get a drink, and I stopped and said, Dickie, just go, he knows Laurie Anderson, he knows Philip, go say hello. So I went, hey, Paul, I, I play with Laurie and Philip. Oh, it's good, good credentials. I said, yes. I said, next time, how do you like the music? And he looked at me like, eh. I said, have you heard the black music of Louisiana? And he said, Zodeco. And I said, I correct you. I said, it's called Zodeco. This is Zydeco for Robert Wilson's production of 1433 with Cedric Watson, Jermaine Prejean, and Dickie Landry. mentioned Clifton Chenier, the man who invented this music, accordion player. And he said, well, that's who I was thinking about. That's who I thought the kind of music I was coming to listen to tonight. He said, I'm working on a project right now that I think Clifton's accordion would sound great on and his band. I said, well, Clifton's in the hospital. He's not doing very well. How soon do you need the music? So not immediate, but soon. And I said, there are other bands. He said, in fact, there's one playing at a club tonight in New York. So he said, well, look, if I go to that and like it, I'll call you in the morning. Well, I was working on a film with Laurie Anderson in New Jersey, and Paul called me at 7 o'clock in the morning. I like what I heard. Find me two more bands and find me a studio in Louisiana. Well, okay. So I came down to Louisiana. I found a friend of mine, Carrie Boutet, owned this restaurant called Mulots, which in history saved Cajun music. Anyway, he said, come to the restaurant. There's a young band right out of high school called Terrace Simeon, and the Mallet Playboys. I go and I'm blown away by these young kids just hitting it hard. So I went up to him, would you like to record with Paul Simon? He knew who Paul Simon was, of course. So the next band I went to was Good Rock and Ducey. And I went up to him and I said, I'm authorized to offer you to record with Paul Simon. Who's that? I said, he's a famous singer from New York. Well, I don't record with Jews. I said, how do you know he's a Jew? Everybody in New York is Jew. I said, oh, come on. I just walked away. 
The ones in the club on, I, I said, go tell Mr. Rock and Ducey who Paul Simon is. So the man comes up to me a few, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, I'll do it, okay. So Paul comes, we go to the studio. It's a, not the best studio in the world. Terrence plays, and he only wants the band to play rhythm, no vocals. So Terrence plays and he says, they're a little bit too young, it's not what I'm looking for, but I'll tell you what, if they would pick a song, I'll sing backup vocals. And the engineer in the background said, Paul, you haven't sang in eight months. Paul turned around and said, who's paying for this? So the tape goes on and backup vocals, they make a master and we walk out on the streets. And this is in Crowley, Louisiana. Five o'clock afternoon, that's not a car, a person on the street. And Paul says, here's the master, I authorize you to make a 45 and release it using my voice. And he said, why don't you manage this group? I said, Paul, I can barely manage myself. He said, not for life, just get a, a record deal, a movie deal, and a booking agent, which eventually I did. I did it for five years. And so we go in, Buckwheat was the other group. We recorded them, good rock and doopsie. He has no idea who Paul is or cares. In the meantime, the owner of the studio is drunk and with his family saying, that's Paul Simon, see, he's in my studio. So Paul is like, Okay, I don't want this band. I said, Paul, give me 10 minutes. So I walk out of the studio and I go to, there's this, a musician in the band, a blind saxophone player, John Hart. I said, John, Paul just dismissed you all, but I want you to go back in there, take the group back in there. If Doopsy doesn't want to play, it doesn't matter. Just y'all go record. So we recorded that, okay. About two weeks later, Paul shows up in the driveway on the farm and in those days there's no CDs, there's cassettes. And he said, my engineer, I've decided that it's Buckwheat. I said, I have two things to tell you. Buckwheat is a great accordion player. Deucey is a horrible accordion player. And the band behind him, that's Clifton Chimier's band. Some hours in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, I get a call from Jackson, Mississippi on his way to Graceland. And he said, yeah, you're right. So that's how That's Your Mother became on the record of Graceland. Nice. That's the true story. I had realized how much you'd been involved in managing as well. You have a great voice too, but you've never been a vocalist. On in the church for six years, singing. I remember one time I was taking a theory class with a teacher at UL, and he had people sing, and I sang. He says, why aren't you taking voice lessons? I said, nah, I'm a woodwind player. I want to play the clarinet, saxophone. And I dismissed it, so I, I never continued a career of singing. Mm-hmm. I wonder in terms of lyrics and because as well as having an eventful, characterful life, you're a great observer of people. I wonder if you ever like to put some of those to words and to music. I got a story. It involves Paul Simon again. So he said, what are you doing tomorrow morning? I said, I work all day. I get off at seven. Well, come to the studio. I want to let you hear what I'm doing. So I go to the studio and meet his engineer who had been with him since he was 15 years old. He said, I want you to listen. So I Tape starts rolling, and Paul is singing in my ear this close. I mean, like an inch away from my ear, singing to the recorded tape. The tape stops, and he says, what do you think? I said, Paul, I have a confession to make. I never bought one of your records. I respect you as guitar player, songwriter, singer. Total respect. He said, oh, same thing happened to me when Bob Dylan sang in my ear. All I could think was Bob Dylan singing in my ear. He said, okay, you'll get over that. I said, okay, play the tape again. The tape plays. And stops, and I go on about the music, the band, the, the guitar player, the bass player, the the, ra- the radio. I said, God, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. And he looks at me really perturbed. He says, What about the lyrics? I said, I listen to music like layers. I couldn't even sing you Silent Night without making a mistake. He said, Well, that's why I brought you up here to create the lyrics with the music. And I said, We'll play it again. 
So we got a pad, I wrote, as he sang, I wrote things. When he finished singing, he looks at the paper, folds it up, puts it in his pocket, go eat, drive to a restaurant, good Italian food, great wine, old restaurant, he knows all the people they want his favorite restaurant. He takes out the piece of paper and he looks at him. He said, finally some criticism. Everybody tells me it sounds great, Paul. He said, so we, since then we've become great friends. I mean, one of my best friends. Yeah. You know, that line between truth and beauty and lyrics, and I don't know how you can say it by case by case or song. And when you see it and you hear it, it's something else. But over the years, honing your critique or just knowing that it's not working, that could be right. closer. Just unfold that a bit. About three weeks later, Paul said, if this record is not a million seller, I'm out of the business. Because I'm just saying, my last record only sold 250,000 copies. Anyway, I get a call at 2 o'clock in the morning one night. Paul is going, I can't sing, my lyrics are, I don't like my lyrics, my guitar player sucks, or the band, blah, blah, blah. He's all depressed and down, I'm going like, I just said, what'd you do today, Paul? He said, well, I turned into the master, and I said, oh, you have nothing to do tomorrow. You worked on Great Fan for like almost two years daily. So it's like a woman who has a baby, the post-depression. So that was silent, and all of a sudden he says, that's why I really like you, because you always know what to say at the right time. Yeah, I need the no bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> no, no bullshit, is exactly. <laughs> yes. That's a hard one, yeah, because it's, I imagine with these varied artists, geniuses, and all these immense talents, people, they can't trust themselves. We are all voice critic, you yeah. know. I did a concert at the Guggenheim, and everybody wanted me to put out the tape, and I'm going like, I didn't like the concert. I didn't like the way I played, mm-hmm. you know. And the engineer says, well, that's your opinion, but other people, they might like it. And I'm going, like, why am I being so hard on myself? Maybe I should release it. Anyway, yeah, we all are our own worst critics when it comes to. As I listen to Dickie Landry talk about his life and work as an artist of all kinds, I think about my experience with voice lessons, instruments, and song. What he said about practice set in my mind as a reminder of how much there always is to learn, always an opportunity for discovery. Dickie speaks about his beginnings with music, growing up in a small town and a farm singing Gregorian chants, and learning to play. It makes me consider how our environment shaped the activities we engage with later on, and in what ways they come back to us as we grow older. In the town I grew up in, there were many opportunities to stay connected to the music department in school, join the chorus, music society, learn from the teachers and students who took part. In college, I consider how these activities stay with you and culminate into new things. Landry makes the introduction to learning music simple, like anyone can partake sharing his beginnings with the flute and clarinet, which later led him to his impressive list of collaborations with accomplished artists who shared in their love for making art. It makes the art world appear more concrete and accessible. He talks about how practice is the key to what brought him down the path of performance, which has guided him throughout most of his life, and extends a message for people to do the same. As I move forward, I think about how I can implement his messages into my own life, discovering the arts in new ways, practicing to get better, and sharing in this with others. Now back to the interview. And in terms of sound engineering and what you can do with music now and a lot of the audio, you pretty yeah. much had to have the sound. I know yeah, yeah, there are some yeah. tricks, but not like they are now. It's interesting because you are an innovator, but technologically you're an innovator, you know, 1972 with that quintet reverberation. Right, tech. right. But now what can be done in studio, maybe you don't have to be even a good musician. People have told me that they worked on some of these big albums. So what are your feelings about some of the new technologies? Well, it can be great. I mean, you can do anything about that you want to do in a studio sometimes, but sometimes it gets in the way. I have a friend of mine that 
his producer's records, to work on the record for a year, tweaking it every day. I mean, how much can you do to it? You can also take out what's human, right? I'm not one of those, you know. Just sometimes there's just too much technology. Just too much. That's that's my final answer to that question. Or you asked the question before, like, British times in my career, first with Laurie, with the concert with Rosenberg and Tricia, then Paul Simon, then David Byrne asked me to. I met one night I was walking around Richard, Richard Sarah in seven, or whenever the talking heads came out. He said, I heard that's a new group, let's go listen to them. So we went. Well, Richard lasted one song, and he said, well, they're too young. Listen. So about a month later, I'm in Los Angeles, and we have a concert at the Whiskey or Go-Go of all places. But the night before, it was Talking Heads. So I'm going to go, he listened to him again. I was blown away. So I walk into the dressing room, and they're, they're all, everybody in the group said, Dick and Larry, what are you doing here? I said, how do you know who I am? They said, we've been going to your concerts since we were in high school. So I got to know David, and he would come over and, and hang out just about every day after that. And unless you ask David a question, there's no conversation. You have to start the conversation. Still the, now? I don't know now, because I'm, I haven't seen him in years by that time. Anyway, so I finally get invited to the studio to do something. He said, what do you want to do? You want to do your delays? You want, what do you want? I said, I want you to take my sound and completely destroy it. What? So if you listen to the song Slippery People on, when you get towards the end, there's a, you know what a thermon is? A thermon is a wire that when you go up and down with your fingers, the, the note will go up and down. It was used in, in horror movies. So that's what it sounds like. So when you get to the end of Slippery People, that's his solo that sounds like this. So that's me. So with those three people, my career, after the loss of my son, those three people reconstructed my career in New York. Yeah. It's nice when art can give you back your life. Yes. And certain people, yes. Yeah. yeah. And is there an element in your work, solo or collaborative or paintings, is do you feel there's a autobiographical element? I mean, even if it's not explicit? Like of that time, if you look at that and you know, oh, I, I was going through that and I can really see that there or hear mm-hmm. that there. Mm-hmm. You said your life got back together through the art of your grieving of your son. Is there an autobiographical element that you remember that you were going through that and you can see the, the traces or the symbols or right. you know, the palimpsest? Right, yeah. It's evolving every day, every day. I haven't been to New York in five years. And like sediment in water, it'll go down to the bottom. That's the way I know people know who I am in New York, but your visibility is not there, so people, they move on. This trip to New York has brought me, my head is above the water now, so I'm back in, I feel like I'm back in the game again, you know. This is Keeps Raining with Robert Plant with Lil Van Gogh. Keep raining and raining. Oh, tears from my eyes Since you've been gone All I do is cry Won't somebody help me? Heard me play in 
seven, eight years in the arts. I got to do these two memorial services for the friends of mine, one of the Whitney and one of Norma PS1. And uh, there's this woman collector, Beth Dewitty, who was there, and she mentioned to the head of the Whitney Museum, Adam Weinberg, that I painted. And he came to me at the dinner and says, I hear you paint. I said, yes, I do. He said, I want to see your paintings. You know how many years I've been trying to get somebody to look at my work at the Whitney Museum since I played there in 1969 with Philip. So my head's above the water in New York again. A career is, I feel, approaching. And with this concert with Bob, this young man comes to me and says, I've seen your photographs and I think you should have a show in Paris. I said, well, I do have an exhibition called Dickie Landry's New York City in 1969 to 1779. He said, that sounds perfect. I got the right gallery for you. I said, it's in your hands. I'm not going to the gallery. You deal with it. And so, like I said, my head's above water and I feel like my career has been resurrected again. After COVID and five years not being on the scene, not performing, I was touring with this band called Urbana Gold which is called Swamp Pop Music. I left Louisiana 50 years ago not to play Swamp Pop. Pop was, you know, out of tune saxophones, three chords, and I wasn't interested. I was into jazz, I was into Arnett Coleman, Coltrane, you know, Stravinsky. When I moved back to Louisiana after 9-11, my friend of mine started a band called Little Band of Gold, and we hired a drummer who had major hits in the 50s, number one, two, three hits in the 50s, Warren Storm and uh, put a band together who, with other musicians. Three of them had Grammy Awards. It was a great band. I learned how I liked playing. So we toured for three years, America, Australia, New Zealand, a couple of times in Europe. And yeah, New York was in the background. You know, yeah. I'd come back to Louisiana and settled into a new life playing Swamp Pop. <laughs> yeah. You can be sometimes in this, particularly in the visual art world, did you know firsthand, can be penalized for your versatility? I'll tell you a good answer. The next statement. I mean, the artists in New York, when I was hanging out with Leo Caselli and drawing and painting and doing photographs, all the artists would come to me and say, you're doing too many things. Well, I, I get bored doing one thing, you know? What's, what's your point? Well, you can, only, you can only have one step of what you do, you know? Uh, I didn't believe in that. I was just, you know, I liked all three of them. I liked everything I did. And also, I had my first concert in New York City at the Leo Costelli Gallery. Having dinner with Leo and his wife, Ileana Sonnabend, and Rauschenberg and a few others one night, and Leo looks at me and says, you want to do something at the gallery? I'm like, why? He says, anything you want. Said, how about a concert? And he had just moved from a tiny gallery up on 72nd Street to 420 West Broadway, which is a big gallery. He said, I always wanted music in my gallery, so you have a concert. In the meantime, I have all these musicians from Louisiana living with me in Chinatown, and we would jam from 10 o'clock in the night and 10 o'clock in the morning, free improvisation. I run back to him and tell him, we got a concert. Well, what are we gonna do? I said, what we always do, we just start playing. So my first concert was at the Leo Caselli Gallery. And then he offered me a show, a photo show, and the artists go like, how'd you get that show? You know, like they were jealous, like, so Leo and I were very close friends. It's that openness <clears throat> and- Some of them were furious. How'd you get that show? He asked me. I didn't go to him and go like, I need a show. I think because it sounds like with all of your friendships that like you love the collaboration and you like the adventure of it and having always new experiences. But also it sounds like mostly you didn't want things from them. 
and people can tell when you don't want things from them. Yeah. And that's why they give them to you. It's what they give, you know, because it's rare. And so I can see why you have the artistry, but also the friendship and trust, because ultimately they, you have to. If you don't trust, trust somebody, it's over. Mm. You know. There is no question that yeah, that's, that's the one that, question. That, yeah, I've had a few experiences with that, not trusting, and I want, but I want to go into it. Oh, oh, I don't want to get it's, you because you're positive. It's been erased in my head. You're positive. We've talked about so many of your collaborations and individual work. And Bill I mean, Burroughs. What was he like? <laughs> Bill Burroughs. I met him through Laurie and some other people, and we weren't. I mean, I met him in going and. I was like in awe, you know, like I'm sitting here with Bill Burroughs, oh my God. Anyway, I was in Brussels with the ensemble and there was a book fair and Bill and Terry Sutton were signing books that they just released. And at the time I had a little, this wind-up Bell and Howell half-frame camera. The light meter was on the front, a little square box, and you can wind it up and do sequential shots. I said, hey Bill, why don't you, uh, can I take a photograph? Yeah, sure. He didn't know I was taking sequential shots. So he goes, and that was it. And then he went back to his crotchety old self. <laughs> and another time for shooting the movie Home of the Brave, Laurie Anderson wanted him to dance across the stage with her, and he didn't want. Laurie came and he said, Dickie, go talk to Bill and convince him. I said, Mia? He said, if anybody can do it, you can do it. So uh, they were in the next, my dressing room next to me, and I walk in, and I could smell they were smoking weed, right? And I said... All right, who's got the joint? And my, this is my imitation of William Burroughs. He turned his back was toward me and said, Every time I go to these universities, I have to answer all those questions. Then I just tell him, I got to go to the bathroom. I go behind the curtain and smoke my joint. I come out and answer all their questions. And he hands me a joint. <laughs> I said, Bill, Laurie wants you to dance. When? I said, right. He said, I can do it right now. So I run out to the stage and I said, Laurie, he wants to dance. Well, the lighting is not right, but we can do it later. I said, you asked me to go in there and get him. I got him. Do it now. So if you look at Home of the Brave, they're dancing across the stage in very low light. I really like that image because it's, you know, I call it one smile. Mm -hmm. And his daughter says that's the best picture they have of him smiling ever. Yeah, I haven't seen another image of him smiling. No, I, that he's I a gr crotchy old man. <laughs> yeah, drugs, because <laughs> you mentioned it. In terms of opening the portals of creativity, and have you found that's opened creative doorways for you? A lot of musicians, artists, open their portals of creativity through whether it's weed or other things. Yeah. So, oh well, I I started smoking weed when I was seventeen years old. Back then, if you gotten caught smoking it was 25 years mandatory in Angola State Prison and wow. 10 years before that it was a death penalty well in 1963 I'm growing weed on my farm you and do that. have a pecan farm that's not euphemism for something farm. else <laughs> so I was growing weed on and I got busted a friend of mine this woman friend of mine who had two daughters they were the last two ballet dancers that Balanchine put in New York City Ballet she came to me and brought this lawyer Minus Simon was his name. And I'm behind the bars, and he goes, I'm asking one question. I said, shoot. He says, where'd you get the seed? I said, I have no idea. He said, I'll take the case. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, in the, in the law, in the books, this means the seed has to be a Mexican derivative, which to me means you have to walk across the border, drive across the border to Mexico, or fly 
get the seed, bring it back to the and put it in the ground. Since you don't know where the seed came from, I'm going to take your case. He's one of the best criminal lawyers at the time in the nation. You remember when all the pedophile stuff was coming here back then? He wanted information from the Catholic Church. Well, he sued the Pope and he won. That's how powerful this man was. So one night I woke up in a cold sweat thinking I'm going into prison for 25 years. And uh, I called him. He says, come to the gallery, his office, right now. So I go to the office and he says, okay, I'm a criminal lawyer. I don't care if you kill, stab your mother a hundred times, cut her up, fed the bones to the dog. You're not guilty until the Supreme Court finds you guilty. Are you ready to go to all the way? I said, shoot, let's go. He said, would you smoke a joint on the stand? I said, why? He says, to show people that you don't go crazy. Because at the time, marijuana was like, you smoke a joint, you go out killing people. Reefer Madness, that was a movie I called Reefer Madness. Anyway, I got five years probation. Otherwise, I would have been in New York five years earlier. I wouldn't have met Philip Glass. I wouldn't be where I am sitting here today without with that intervention of getting arrested for smoking weed. In fact, it was a godsend for me, looking back at my history. I would have been in New York five years earlier, knowing nobody. It would have been a different thing. Well, you I know, think you would have found your way. I mean, it was I assume, yeah. but that's not a guarantee. When I got to New York in 69, I knew people there already. If I had gone earlier, I didn't know anybody. I just went there cold, just you know, like coming, um, put your suitcase, find them. Yeah, I knew people there in 69. Two people from Louisiana, Keith Saunier, an artist, and African-American Bill Fisher. He was a band director in a little town in Louisiana who was a arranger and composer. At some point, I decided I'm either going to go to San Francisco or New York. I'm on the highway at the conjunction east-west. I'm sitting on the side of the road looking at a map, and this black friend of mine, saxophone player, pulls over. He says, what are you doing? I said, I don't know if I should go to San Francisco or New York. He said, come spend the night. During the conversation, he says, who do you know in San Francisco? I said, I said nobody. He said, who are you in New York? Keith Sonier and Bill Fisher. Called him. I called him. Come to New York. So that's how I got to New York. And, uh, with Keith, I was helping him videos and helping him with his art. And with Bill Fisher, he was the chief engineer at Atlantic Records, which means Aretha Franklin, all those great jazz musicians. Joe Zavanu had Weather Report. He said, I want you to start working with me, but I can't bring you as a saxophone player because there's seniority at the rec- There are the saxophone players before you. He'd write music all day, and I'd transcribe it and put it down for the musicians to play. One day, there was a recording session with Aretha Franklin and Fathead Newman, saxophone player, and King Curtis. King Curtis was not there. Bill says, get your horn out. I got my horn out. Aretha walks in, and she takes Fathead and I to the car. This is a song, come up with the parts. So we came up with the parts. We do three takes, in walks King Curtis. So I put my horn down. And well, about two weeks later, Atlantic Records, somebody had record company called me and said, we really like the way you sounded. I want you to come and record, but you have to sound like King Curtis. Thorough. Nobody tells me how I'm supposed to sound. So I said, I have his number, call him. And I walked out of Atlantic Records and went down to uh, Philip Glass. Yeah. And it's I was, a completely I'll, different soundscape yeah. there. Yeah. And I was good friends with Joe Zabino, the guy who had Weather Report. I used to hang out with him in his apartment. One day the phone rang and he said, no, I'm not coming in today. Click. I said, what was that about? He said, well, I could go and make a jingle, like a, an ad. I could make $600, but I think I'm going to stay home and write some music and start a new group, Weather Report. So that's my story in New York. And in terms of staying on at Atlantic Records, I mean, those are some amazing artists, of too. I understand that it's kind of very limiting to be told to play somebody else's sound. Do you have some regrets sometimes about that, about Atlantic Records? 
You talked about two roads between I had New York no and regrets. San no, no regrets. I would have gone to San Francisco and not known anybody. Otherwise, I might have been with the Grateful Dead. I might have drifted into that style of music in San Francisco. Into yeah. acid, I went into that whole scene. And Aretha Franklin, so many legends. Yeah. Well, I only got to meet her for like 10 minutes while she sang the song and we came up with the parts. Yeah. There's a whole nother. With Fathead, Bill Fisher said, would you take Fathead in? For a month. I said, why? So he's shooting up, we want to get him off the heroin. So I took, as a man and as a human being, I took Fat Ed in to my apartment for a month, fed him, would not let him go out or anything else. And many years later, I see him at the Village Vanguard in New York City. And after his concert, I walked up, I said, Fathead, 98 Horatio Street, Dickie Landry, I've been looking for you for years. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. You saved his yeah. life because someone. More than yeah. likely, yeah. Yeah, that's tough. A lot of young people coming up are wondering how to have that kind of free, adventurous, creative right. life. So you right. really modeled that, and I appreciate that. So as you think about the future and how you came up, the teachers who were important for you, what for you is the importance of the arts, and what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? Young people, follow your dreams. Don't look down, look up. <laughs> that was from an experience. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Bob. <laughs> yes, yeah. and follow your dreams and practice, practice, practice. Got to put in those hours. Yeah. yeah, a real pleasure. Thank you. I'm honored that you sought me out. Thank you, Dickie Landry, for sharing with us your life, your art, your music, the importance of friendship and collaboration, and your openness to be constantly reinventing yourself and sharing that with others, and just the humility of your spirit. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. My total pleasure. It keep raining and raining. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. An associate interviews producer on this podcast was Daisy O'Dwyer. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Higginbotham. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.